Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Triangular thinking. 50 years after Nixon met Mao, are there lessons for today's leaders? Published in Week in China. Read to you by Cliff Larson. On February 17, 1972, President Richard Nixon departed Washington for a seminal journey to China, in which he met Mao Zedong. As he told journalists prior to his departure, a trip to China is going to going to the moon, that pretty much summed up the isolation of Maoist China at the time. A rich assortment of articles has been looking back at the significance of the 50th anniversary of this landmark event. Indeed, the great power triangulation that is triggered between Beijing, Washington, and Moscow has seen a renewal of sorts today. That said, it was the Chinese and Russian leaders triangulating this time, issuing a joint rebuke over NATO expansionism during Vladimir Putin's visit to the Beijing Winter Olympics this month. Last weekend, the Financial Times published a lengthy article about the anniversary of the Sino-U.S. breakthrough in 1972, in which it noted, quote, Fifty years ago on Nixon's adventurous diplomacy is as relevant as ever in what seems reminiscent of the old China-Soviet axis, Presidents Putin and Xi Jinping are finding common cause as the Ukraine crisis heats up. They met for the 38th time last week. Indeed, the power pendulum in this three-way relationship seems to be swinging in a new direction. In 1972, Nixon's hope was to peel Beijing away from Moscow, and he was successful, making a major contribution to the eventual victory over the Soviet Union in the Cold War. Now the threesome has reoriented into a new two-versus-one alliance. China and Russia have become firmer diplomatic friends 50 years on because of their mutual antipathy towards the United States. As the South China Morning Post points out in its own article on the anniversary, Nixon saw in diplomatic overtures to Mao an opportunity to gain leverage over the Soviet Union, and with that a chance to break the geopolitical stalemate with Moscow that had frustrated Washington for two decades. But it took time for Nixon, working with his national security adviser Henry Kissinger and others in a tight-knit group of policymakers to reach that conclusion. The newspaper says there were many false starts before Nixon's landmark rapprochement. The divide between Beijing and Washington was so wide that initial attempts by American diplomats to inform Chinese counterparts about Nixon's willingness 
to open a dialogue had to take place at a Yugoslav fashion show in Warsaw in late 1969. An awkward exchange that failed because the message recipient had not been briefed on how to respond to an overture. For anyone looking for the definitive account of the 1972 summit, Week in China wholeheartedly recommends Margaret Macmillan's book Seize the Hour, When Nixon Met Mao. We first mentioned this brilliantly readable history as far back as Week in China 12. As Macmillan points out in her intro, President Richard Nixon and Chairman Mao Zedong were well aware that they were making history that day in 1972. Both understood that their meeting, and indeed Nixon's whole visit to China, were important above all else for their symbolism. It was, after all, the first ever visit of an American president to China, and an end to the long standoff, where neither country had recognized the other. It was an earthquake in the Cold War landscape, and meant that the Eastern Bloc no longer stood firm against the West. Or, as Nixon said in a prophetic toast as he departed Shanghai, We've been here a week. This was the week that changed the world. Macmillan's book describes meticulously how Nixon's visit to China had taken three years to arrange. There were some key moments. Mao, for instance, was convinced he'd found the best back channel to American diplomatic circles through a briefing he gave in 1970 to the U.S. journalist Edgar Snow, who had first interviewed Mao in the 1930s. Mao spoke of a potential Nixon visit to Snow, despite tensions around the status of Taiwan, which persists today, of course. Taiwan was clearly an issue between the two of them, but what did it have to do with Nixon? Ten million people in Taiwan were nothing compared to the billion people in Asia, Macmillan quotes Mao as telling Snow. Snow's article took so long to find a publisher that it had little impact, however, more decisive was the personal decision by Mao on April 6, 1971, to invite the U.S. table tennis team to China. Nixon and Kissinger were surprised but delighted at the invitation, Macmillan writes, of what was since become known as ping-pong diplomacy. The background to the Mao-Nixon meeting was the deep freeze in relations between the former Red Allies, Communist China, and the Soviet Union. In 1964, Mao was so concerned about attack from his northern neighbor that he ordered the movement of crucial industries inland to the mountains and high plateaus of western China, as well as digging bunkers in the cities. By the end of the 1960s, Mao and indeed what was left of the foreign policy establishment in Beijing, were convinced that the chief threat to China, greater even than the United States, was the Soviet Union, wrote Macmillan, noting that by 1969 the number of Soviet divisions on the Chinese border had grown to 27 from the 17 four years earlier. The real trouble started over a mudflat known as Jambal, Damansky Island. In late 1968, belligerent soldiers from both nations faced off with sticks. The mood turned deadlier, 
the following March when the Chinese sent armed troops onto the disputed island. After being challenged, they opened fire. The Chinese say 50 Soviets were killed, Soviets claim 30 dead, but the upshot was an escalation. Two weeks later, the two armies fought with heavy artillery and tanks, upping the death toll. Then, on August 13th, hardliners in Moscow ordered the limited military attack on the border with Xinjiang. A fortnight later, the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party issued new orders to the people to brace for conflict. Zhou Enlai told a military conference on September 22nd, The international situation is extremely tense. We should be prepared to fight a war. In the light of these events, Beijing began to look at the U.S. differently, as a counterbalance to Moscow's militarism. However, when Nixon first told his top diplomat Henry Kissinger in February 1969 that he wanted to open up relations with China, his national security adviser was dumbfounded, according to General Alexander Haig, who was then Kissinger's assistant. Our leader has taken leave of reality. He has just ordered me to make his flight of fancy come true, Kissinger warned. Three years later, the rapprochement with the Chinese was reality. Nixon's journey to China was planned so that the president would arrive as well rested as possible. He stayed in Hawaii for two days and then had another overnight stop in Guam. His arrival time in Beijing at 11.30 a.m. on Monday, February 21, 1972, was chosen carefully to make television news in all time zones back in the United States, Macmillan writes. Nixon emerged from Air Force One in a blue suit and gray overcoat. His wife, Pat, followed in a red coat. She had ignored the warnings of American China specialists that only prostitutes wore red in China, Macmillan observed. The choice of coat was not taken lightly, as this was a major media event. The Chinese side were amazed by the activities of the advance team sent by Washington to ensure that the president would get maximum press coverage. The runway in Beijing was even marked up with paint to make sure the plane stopped at the right distance and correct angle so as to maximize the drama of Nixon's groundbreaking steps onto Chinese soil. As Macmillan's account points out, one item that the American advance party had brought with them caused a particular stir, a Xerox copier that produced amazement among the Chinese officials. When the Americans realized that the Chinese were copying all their own documents out by hand, they arranged to leave their copier behind as a gesture of goodwill. The White House wanted pictures of Nixon in China to be seen on television across America. To make that happen, the Americans had to bring in satellite transmission equipment, which Beijing asked to rent. This led to an unusual negotiation, at least by hard-nosed Chinese standards. Macmillan wryly observes that the Chinese became convinced that the Americans were undercharging them, causing a loss of face, so they insisted, to the great confusion of American officials, on paying more than the asking price. 
The vast banquet at the Great Hall of the People, hosted by Premier Zhou Enlai in Nixon's honor, was covered by all the American networks and televised for four hours. It turned into a massive media circus. The Chinese had suggested that ten journalists accompany Nixon to China, though the U.S. negotiated that number up to 90. There were 2,000 applications for accreditation, including one from young Barbara Walters, one of only three female journalists who made it to Beijing. Alongside the moon landings, this was one of the great TV events of the era. The televised Chinese feast saw mass toasting between the attendees with China's national liquor, Tai, described by broadcaster Dan Rather as, quote, liquid razor blades, unquote. In one of the diplomatic high points of the evening, Joe gifted Nixon two pandas. In return, Nixon bestowed a great musk oxen and two giant redwood trees from California. With the cameras rolling, the American president quoted Mao's poetry in a toast to Joe. So many deeds cry out to be done, and always urgently. The worlds roll on. Time passes. Ten thousand years are too long. Seize the day. Seize the hour. The far more significant event had happened earlier in the afternoon, away from the television cameras. Nixon and Kissinger went for a private meeting at Mao's home. The gathering was supposed to be fifteen minutes. Mao was very ill, but it went on for an hour, and at one point Mao clasped Nixon's hand for almost a minute. The most moving moment, Nixon later confided in his diary. This time it was a Chinese photographer on hand to capture the dramatic Mao-Nixon handshake, which was then relayed around the world. Mao, at pains to point out that China was never an aggressor, preferred to keep debate with Nixon at higher level, telling the U.S. leader, I discuss philosophical questions. Nevertheless, Nixon told White House staff on his return that Mao was a man who saw strategic concepts with great vision. In his subsequent conversation with Joe, he made the telling observation, We've broken out of the old pattern. Nixon's reference to the new triangulation that had occurred. Veteran journalist Jane Perlez pointed out in a recent article in the Financial Times that Nixon didn't necessarily think his opening of China in 1972 would be unalloyed advantage for the U.S. over the long term. He had few illusions that China would become democratic, that goal was for sentimentalists, and he intuited that his achievement in prying China away from the Soviets could eventually end up to America's disadvantage. He could see that China would catch up with the U.S. militarily and economically. His biographer, Richard Reeves, recalled that Nixon believed there would eventually be conflict between the U.S. and China, and in that situation, the outlook for the U.S. was grim. In fact, Reeves told an audience at the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston in 2006 that it was Nixon's view that the American and Chinese interests were fundamentally different over the longer term, 
and eventually they would clash. It might be a shooting war, it might be an economic war. The East would win that confrontation, was Nixon's final assessment. Fifty years after his memorable meeting with Mao, this view is of interest to the realpolitik of today. Triangular thinking, fifty years after Nixon met Mao, are there lessons for today's leaders? Written in the week in China. Read to you by Cliff Larson.